After I graduated high school, I attended a small Bible college in the panhandle of Florida. The name of that Bible college was BCF, or the full name, the Baptist College of Florida. Not a Baptist college, the Baptist College of Florida. And as you can imagine by the name, it was a really conservative Bible school. Our motto, our slogan, uh, at least that we gave it, is we put the fun in fundamental Baptist. Uh, That was what we were running with here. Now, for those of you who have never had the joy or the privilege of attending a small Bible college, let me explain some things to you. There are several types of people that you will find at every Bible college in America. It is true of the one I attended, and it is true of everyone I have ever taught at since. Here are four types of people that you will run into at every Bible college in America. Number one, you will always find one guy who has recently learned how to play a few chords on the guitar, GCD, usually at first three, and he is always in the gazebo or down by the lake playing worship songs, like all the time. You can't have a bonfire with your buddies without this guy just like pulling out his guitar and playing Waves of Mercy, Waves of Grace, or whatever song was popular at the time, and you're like, just put your guitar away, Ricky. Like, we're just trying to hang out, you know? So there's always that, like, one, one dude. There's also, secondly, the one guy who takes intramural sports way too seriously. He is incredibly competitive and aggressive. He has, like, a conditioning plan that he's working through all year long, and you're like, dude, settle down. You're not here on a scholarship for Ultimate Frisbee. You do not have to work that hard, but yet there's always the, the one guy. Third, you will always find at least one couple who meets the first week of class, orientation, orientation of freshman year, and by the summer, between freshman and sophomore year, they have gotten married. Uh, now, our school is called BCF, and the joke was that it stood for not the Baptist College of Florida, but the Bridal College of Florida, because so many girls would come to get their MRS degree. <laughs> Makes sense for some of you. Lastly, You will always find at every Bible college in America a group of young theology bros arguing about Calvinism and Arminianism. (laughs) Now, if you don't know what those words mean, good on you. You managed to get through your uh, childhood, teenage years, college life, and adult life without the trauma of these debates. You probably also don't know every line to the song Jesus Freak, and the the rest of us are jealous of you. But for some of you, even hearing those words, Calvinism and Arminianism, just, it's like it creates tension in your heart, in your mind. You have a little PTSD over these words. I vividly remember where I was sitting when I heard the doctrines of grace for the first time. I can still remember the place I was sitting. My buddies Eric and Matt sat me down and they explained this new theology that I had never heard of called Calvinism. And they were like, this is tulip. And the T stands for total depravity. And for those of you who didn't grow up in church, I'm not going to explain the entire acronym for you. Just know that Christians love to come up with acronyms for everything. So you guys remember the bracelets? Not WWJD, but frog. Fully rely on God. So silly, but Christians love to come up with acronyms. So they've come up with this acronym for the doctrines of grace. And they walk me through these doctrines of grace, the five points of Calvinism. And I kid you not, I heard them out and I got angry. Like, I was legitimately angry, and I remember saying out loud, if this is what God is like, if this is what God is like, then I do not want to follow or serve this God. And then I started studying my Bible, and I realized things aren't as black and white as I imagined they were when I first started attending Bible college. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 6. 
John chapter 6, as we continue our series through John's gospel, we come to a passage and a topic that has historically been one of the most controversial, most confusing, and most misunderstood and most debated topics in theology. You may remember in the first sermon of this series, I quoted St. Augustine who said this. He said, John's gospel is deep enough for an elephant to swim in and yet shallow enough for a child not to drown. So here's your warning right up front today. We are about to be a bunch of elephants swimming in the deep end for the next 40 or 45 minutes. So we'll pick it up in verse 60, where we were two weeks ago. We'll pick it up in verse 60 and go through 65. If you don't have a Bible, these words will be on the screen. It says this. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, the hard saying that they're referring to is Jesus saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And we, ta- we covered that phrase two weeks ago, so go back and listen to that sermon. We don't have time for it this morning, but for now, keep reading verse 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? Or like, you, you have a problem with this, guys? Then what, look at verse 62, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now, we don't have time for this today, But this phrase, the Son of Man ascending, it is loaded with meaning. Loaded with meaning. In other words, this is not just Jesus saying, when you see me float back into the sky like a helium balloon, that's that's not what he's saying. This is a theological statement steeped in Old Testament history and meaning and language. We talked about this back when we covered, I don't know, several months ago, John chapter 1, verse 57, if you want to go back and listen to that sermon. But again, for now, just keep reading. Look at verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Now, if you underline or highlight in your Bible, I want you to circle that word life. There are three words that the New Testament authors use for the word life. One is the word bios. It's where we get the word biology. It it makes up our physical being. It's flesh and bone and blood and tears. It's all the processes involved in being awake and taking breath in the morning. That's bios. The second Greek word that they often use is psyche or suke. This is who we are in our minds. It's our thoughts, our personality, our being, our soul. It's that part of your spouse that you fall in love with, but you can't quite articulate. But John doesn't use either one of these words. Instead, he uses the word zoe. Zoe is spiritual life. It's this shalom life. It's life as God intended it in his kingdom. Now, we'll talk more about this in a bit, but essentially what Jesus is saying is that the flesh and this would include your will and your emotion and your intellect, the flesh cannot produce spiritual life on its own. We must have a divine initiator to express faith in God. Keep reading. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The words I have spoken to you are zoe, spiritual life. In other words, Jesus says, I am the divine initiator. But look at verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Now, he is talking generally about those who will not choose to follow him. He knew from the beginning, but specifically, we'll find out next week, he's talking about Judas, who is going to betray him, which is fascinating because he knows that Judas is going to betray him from the beginning, and yet he allows Judas to participate in all the other things that the disciples get to participate in, which is just really fascinating. Now, in verse 65, this is where we just cannonball into the deep end of the theological pool. Look at verse 65. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me 
unless it is granted to him by the Father. Now, Jesus is just repeating what he has already said in this chapter. Go back to verse 44. If you have your Bibles open, go back to verse 44 and look at this. Carrie Faye covered this a couple of weeks ago, but due to the length of the text, wasn't able to do a deep dive here. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So who can come to him unless the Father draws him? Who can come? No one. No one. Now, that phrase, no one, in the Greek is this word. We'll put it on the screen. It's udais or udais. And what's fascinating about this term is it literally means no one. No one can come. So Jesus in verse 65 and in verse 44 makes it explicitly clear. No one can come to him in faith unless the father first draws him or her to faith. Now that leads to all sorts of theological debate and confusion. Because here's the tension, if you haven't already started to pick up on it. The tension is this. Does God the father draw all people to himself, but only some respond in faith? Or... Does the Father only draw those whom he predestined and elected to come to faith, and everyone he draws comes to faith in him? Does that make sense? Attention? Okay, if it didn't, let me read you this quote. John Piper describes the tension of John 6:44 like this. He says, One reason it's controversial is that if you simply take the verse as it stands, it could mean two different things. On the one hand, it could mean that no one can come to Jesus without God's drawing. And God draws everyone, but only some come. So God's drawing doesn't cause the coming. It only makes the coming possible. And then the one who comes provides the decisive impulse or the cause. Or, keep listening, on the other hand, it could mean that no one can come to Jesus without God's drawing. And everyone whom he draws does come because God's drawing infallibly produces the coming. This could mean that the Father only draws some, since all don't come, and that the decisive cause of the coming is God, not man. Are you confused yet? (laughs) Reads a little bit like a Dr. Seuss riddle, uh, if I'm honest. But this is worth spending some time on. So we're going to stop there and ask the question, so what? What do we do with this? Because we have to recognize this isn't just an intellectual or philosophical question. How we answer these questions have massive implications for who God is and whether or not we can trust him. So in order to understand and apply this passage to our life here and now, I want to break it down into three words. Three words that will help us make sense of and apply this straightforward but very confusing line of Jesus. Here are the three words I want to walk through with the rest of our time. Dead, drawn, determined. It's like theological Sesame Street. It's brought to you by the letter D. Dead, drawn, (laughs) determined. First, dead. Before we can even start to understand the drawing of God, we must first understand this sobering reality. Brothers and sisters, before Jesus, we are dead in our sin. Dead. Let me show you this in a few verses. You don't have to turn there. Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men and women, you're not off the hook, because all sinned. Now, this does mean our physical death. This is how physical death was ushered into the world, but it also means our spiritual death while we are on the earth. And then look at this, Ephesians chapter 2. 
Paul says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now tell us how you really feel about us, Paul. One more, Romans 3. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Brothers and sisters, here's what the scriptures teach again and again and again. We, you and I, are helpless, hopeless, despondent, dead people. Because of the sin of our first father, Adam, we have been born into sin and every one of us deserves condemnation and death. And furthermore, because of our spiritual blindness, there is nothing, nothing we could ever do to fix it or make it better. We cannot choose him on our own initiative. We can't work our way out of this pit of despair. No amount of good works, no amount of self-righteous behavior, no amount of religious ritual can mend the brokenness that sin has caused. So the question is, well, how does this get resolved? If we can't do anything to fix it, how then do we get saved? If we don't even have the capacity as dead people to choose God, how are we rescued from this life of death? And that leads to the second word, drawn. Drawn. The passage we just looked at said it very clearly. Unless someone is drawn by the Father, he or she cannot come to Jesus. We see this very clearly. God, by his grace and kindness, initiates a relationship with us. The famous preacher J.C. Ryle said it like this. We are all so sunk in sin and so wedded to the world that we would never turn to God and seek salvation unless he first called us by his grace. Without a divine call, no one can be saved. Now, this is really important because there's a school of thought out there that says when we come to faith in Jesus, that it is somehow the culmination of our own intellect or our own pursuit of him by pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps, white-knuckling our sin and following Jesus. In other words, it puts the onus on us as the initiator of our faith. But that runs contrary to everything we see in the New Testament. The prime example of this is the Apostle Paul. Think of how the Apostle Paul came to faith in Jesus. Was Paul seeking Jesus? Was he feeling guilty over the persecution of Christians? Was he listening to a Tim Keller podcast about faith and skepticism on his horse while he was riding to persecute more Christians? No, none of that. But Jesus shows up and he goes, you're mine now. You're mine. Just like that. In God's gracious love and divine foreknowledge, he initiated a relationship with the Apostle Paul. And the same is true for you. We didn't initiate it. We can't initiate it. It is based entirely on his goodness and his kindness. The scriptures make this abundantly clear. My favorite is Paul in Ephesians 2. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God so that no one may boast. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said it like this. I have no questions that God chose me because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should have never chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. God called us, he chose us, he loved us, he wooed us into his love and affection. We didn't do it. But that leads to all sorts of confusion that we have to wrestle through, tensions in the text. The questions that I mentioned earlier, are all people drawn and invited? 
and some, in their human freedom, choose not to follow? Or are only those who are drawn by the Father the elect or the predestined, those whom God foreknew before all time? And these questions really stem from a larger question about God's sovereignty and control over all things. Another way of framing this theological tension is this. Is God in control of everything, and therefore everything that happens on earth is planned and predetermined, and we are essentially puppets on a string? Or did God create us as free moral agents who can pick and choose our own little adventure here on earth? So let me try to answer these questions. And I really need you to hang with me for the next few moments, okay? Theologians have been arguing about this for 2,000 years, and I'm going to try to answer it once and for all in 10 minutes. So just hang in there, okay? A lot of verses coming your way. So let's take it kind of one thought or one question at a time. First question is this. Is God in absolute control over everything that occurs on earth, including whether or not some people experience salvation? Let me show you a few verses. Ephesians chapter 1. It says this, in him we have obtained an inheritance, that's speaking of our salvation, having been predestined according, that just means like determined beforehand, there's nothing tricky there, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So how many things does God work according to his will? All things, including our inheritance or our salvation, which was according to the text, predestined before time. Romans 8 highlights this as well. Romans 8.28 says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those that are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. There it is again. But this goes beyond our salvation. It actually extends to all things, even things that seem like chance. Look at this, Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah 45 says, God speaking, I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. Now we love that God creates light and our well-being. We don't love that he also creates darkness and calamity because we, again, we have a hard time understanding that. Look at Proverbs 16, 33 says this, the lot is cast into the lap. The lot was just like a way of uh, gambling or determining something. But it's every decision is from who? The Lord. Even things that seem like chance or luck, the roll of the dice, are decisions from the Lord. Okay, in case those haven't made you perk up, let me read the hardest one. Romans 9. Romans 9 verse 14. What shall we say then? They're trying to understand this. Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, you remember him if you grew up in church, for this very purpose I have raised you up so that I might show my power in you that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then God has mercy on whomever he wills, and God hardens whomever he wills. How you doing? Okay. I could show you more, but it feels unnecessary at this point. Let me ask the question again. Is God in absolute control of everything that occurs on the earth, including whether or not some people experience salvation? And the answer is yes. Yes. Now hang with me. Okay. Next question. Do human beings have free will? 
including the freedom to choose sin or to follow Jesus or to frame it differently in terms of salvation. Does God invite all to come to him, but some choose to reject it while others choose to receive the call? Let me show you a few verses from the Bible. John chapter three. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God loved the world that whoever believes, whoever believes, could come. Later in John, John chapter 12, this one's really difficult. It says this, and I, Jesus, when I am lifted up from the earth, when I am ascended to the throne, I will draw, how many people? All people to myself. Let me show you another one. First Timothy 2. This This is good, verse three, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved, not some, not a few, all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now, some theologians will try to argue that this doesn't refer to all, it refers to all different types of people, but that's not what the text says. He desires all people to be saved, and he gave himself as a ransom for all people. So back to the question, do human beings have free will, freedom to choose whether or not they will respond to this drawing of God? Does God invite all to come, and some choose to reject it? And the answer is yes. Yes. But Justin, which one is it? It it must be one or the other, right? I'm so glad you asked. Let's go back to the Bible. Always go to the Bible in discussions like this. Never rely on your intellect or your emotions. Always go to the Bible. So let's go back to the Bible. Let me show you a passage, a couple of passages. Acts chapter 2. This is Peter preaching at Pentecost. He says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, listen to this, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Jesus was delivered and crucified according to the definite plan of God. No one could stop it from happening. But at the end of the day, who killed Jesus? Who has to answer, be responsible for this? These men. These men who chose to kill Jesus. We also see something similar in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, believers are praying together And these are their words to God. So they're praying these words to God. And they say, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So who put Jesus to death? Well, the scriptures don't give one clear answer. This is who put Jesus to death. Wicked people planned it and acted freely, and yet God determined that he would do it through moral agents acting freely. Okay, let me show you another. It's fun. This is fun, isn't it? We're having fun? Okay. 1 Peter 2, verse 8. It's talking about people sinning. They stumble because they disobey the word. So why why do they stumble? They disobey the word. As they were destined to do. So again, let's go back to where this detour began. (laughs) Is God in control of everything and therefore everything is planned and determined by him? 
so we're just kind of puppets on a string? Or did God create us as free moral agents who can pick and choose our own little adventure on earth and be held responsible for our decisions and our actions? And the good, yes, the good, biblically faithful answers is, yeah, mm-hmm, exactly. But how can this be? Like, we must be able to explain it. Well, that's going to be really difficult because we have such a limited perspective as finite human beings. It's incredibly difficult to explain. Maybe an illustration will help. Do you guys remember these? <laughs> Does that look familiar? Compact discs, CDs as the kids call them these days. Just kidding, kids don't know what these are. Uh, <laughs> so I pulled, this out, I pulled this out of my truck. This is a Merle Haggard CD, classic. Okay, so let me just, let me hold it up right here. Now, from where you are sitting, I want you to think about what this looks like from your perspective. So if you're on this side of the room, you see a round object. There's a hole in the middle, and it's shiny, maybe like a mirror. If you're sitting on this side of the room, you go, yeah, that's a round object. There's a hole in the middle, but it's not shiny. There's words on it. It says, the essential Merle Haggard, the epic years. So you're like, I don't fully agree with their perspective. Now, if you're sitting in the middle or you're watching at home, what does it look like to you? A line? Yeah, there's, it's not a mirror. It's not round. There's no writing on it. It's just a, a line. So I ask you the question. Who's right? All of you are. And all of you are wrong. (laughs) Because we have such a limited perspective on what we're viewing. When we come to topics like this one, it would do us well to acknowledge that we have a very small theirs. James Kennedy, pastor, used a really helpful illustration. He said this, say you have five people who decide to hold up a bank. So in my version, let's say our five elders and pastors, David, excluding myself because I'd never participate, David, (laughs) Jerry, Scott, Jordan, Adam, decide they're going to rob a bank. They tell me this at an elder meeting, and I find out, and I plead with them, guys, you can't do this. For like a number of reasons, you can't do this. I beg them, and finally they go, we don't care what you have to say, Justin. They push me out the way, and they start running to First Tech Credit Union or whatever bank is closest. And I decide I've got to do something. So I run and I tackle the slowest one and I wrestle him to the ground and I hold him there. The others continue on to the bank. They rob the bank and they kill two people in the process. They are then captured, convicted, and sentenced to life in prison. But the one man that I was able to tackle and hold down, he goes free because he didn't participate in the robbery. Now I ask you the question. Whose fault was it that the other men were arrested and sentenced? Can they blame me for that? Absolutely not. They did that. I tried to stop them. They made that choice. And the other man, who's walking around free now, can he say, because my heart was so good, I didn't go rob the bank? No. He would have to say, I'm only free because someone restrained me from that bad decision. So then Kennedy goes on to say this. So it is that those who go to hell have no one to blame but themselves. Those who go to heaven have no one to praise but Jesus Christ. Thus, we said salvation is all grace from beginning to end. And I'll say one last thing before moving on. If you have a loved one who is not following Jesus, do not give up hope. Continue to pray. 
Continue loving them, continue pursuing them. Time and time again, we see God pursue people where they are and draw them to himself. And often where people are is in rebellion to him, running headlong into sin and disobedience. Keep praying. I know that's a lot, but please don't miss the point. We were dead, helpless, and hopeless, but God, being rich in mercy, drew us to himself and offered forgiveness. Last word, determined, determined. This point gives me such hope, you guys. Earlier, I mentioned Calvin's doctrines of grace, which often get referred to by the acronym TULIP. The P in that acronym stands for the perseverance of the saints. And we actually see this theological idea in John chapter 6, which we looked at earlier. Look again at verse 44. The, notice the last half of the sentence. Jesus says, Of those whom he will draw to himself, I will raise him or her up on the last day. Brothers and sisters, if God has drawn you and you have placed your faith in him, he will protect you, preserve you, keep you until that final day when he calls us home forever. Of this verse and this reality, Dr. John MacArthur, or I called Johnny Mac, lovingly, says this, once again, Jesus repeated the wonderful promise that all whom the Father chooses will be drawn, will come, will be received, and he will raise them on the last day. Everyone who comes to Christ will be kept by him. There is no possibility that even one elect person given to him by the Father will be lost. Now let me be clear about what this does not mean. This does not mean that you will not struggle or fail or sin. You will. But in the end, you will make it through. God will keep you through the end. R.C. Sproul says it like this, true Christians can have radical and serious falls, but never total and final falls from grace. And this protection, this perseverance, it should humble us and it should make us grateful because it is all from the Lord. Again, it is not of our own doing. It is only because God is protecting us and preserving us to the end. Again, R.C. Sproul puts it better than I can. He says this, I think this little catchphrase, perseverance of the saints, is dangerously misleading. And I would agree. It suggests that the perseverance is something we do, perhaps in and of ourselves. I believe that saints do persevere in the faith and that those who have been effectually called by God and have been reborn by the power of the Holy Spirit endure till the end. However, they persevere not because they are so diligent in making use of the mercies of God. He continues, the only reason we can give why any of us continue on in the faith is because we have been preserved. So I prefer the term preservation of the saints because the process by which we are kept in a state of grace is something that is accomplished by God. My confidence in my preservation is not my ability to persevere. My confidence rests in the power of Christ to sustain me with his grace and by the power of his intercession. He is going to bring us safely home. This is our confidence, friends. Though we were dead in sin, our heavenly father drew us to himself. He forgave us. He saved us from death and hell and he will preserve us till the very end. As we prepare our hearts and our minds for the tables of communion, I want to remind us of a simple thing, especially as we leave. We will spend the rest of our life living in the tensions we talked about today. God has revealed himself as knowable, and yet we will never be able to fully comprehend him. And so because of that, we better learn how to live in the tension that is faith in Jesus. And one way we live in that tension is to go back to what we know to be true, what we absolutely know to be true every week. And that is the good news of Jesus and the tables of communion that remind us of his sacrificial death and resurrection on our behalf.
So as we come to the tables, let me remind you that Jesus does not speak these words in John's gospel to create controversy or confusion. He spoke these words in John's gospel to call sinners to himself, to humble the proud, and to glorify his Father. This is why he lived. This is why he died. This is why he rose again. So brothers and sisters, come to Jesus. Be humbled by Jesus. Be satisfied in Jesus.